Welcome back to another episode of Classic Coverage, the podcast that looks at classic movies back when they were just screenplays. My name is Max Davis, and I'll be your host. I'm an... <coughs> God, where's the cough button? <coughs> oh, sorry you had to hear that. Uh, the, the intern room that they have relegated and jettisoned me off to at this production company, it is, it is damp. It is dusty, it is poorly ventilated, and there's probably a gas leak somewhere around here. Uh, there have been workmen all around the building, and they've been touching up the vents. In fact, they, they've been laying a lot of new pipe. They've been laying a lot of pipe for something that's supposed to be coming soon. And when you do that enough, you hope that it's going to pay off. But this week, it's not going to. So I'm doing a little bit better since last episode. I'm still recovering after getting catfished and realizing that I am just creatively bankrupt and can't come up with any new ideas. But, you know, it's, it's time, to, time to move forward. Uh, a great man once said, there are no second acts in American life. And I, I believe that was either Nicolas Cage in Adaptation, maybe Aaron Sorkin. I've heard F. Scott Fitzgerald, but one of them said that. So it's time to move forward with the next chapter of my life. I mean, I'm not quitting this job and I'm not going to face reality and get a real nine to five. So it's more of a metaphorical uh, next chapter of my life. And actually, two very interesting things happened in the, over the past week, one of which is that I remember I spilled coffee over a script without a title page, and I finally sat down and read it. And, you know, it's, it's always surprising when this job throws me something of quality. And this script was. It's called Goodell, and it's Concussion, but told from Commissioner Roger Goodell's point of view. And whereas Concussion, it was a little bit preachy. You know, you had Dr. Bennett Amalu as your main character who was right and just and crusading against brain trauma, which I guess, you know, most people can get behind. But in this one, it's told through Roger Goodell's point of view as he is slimy and sleazy and he's trying to circumvent what every doctor tells him to do. But it's all done under the guise of protecting America's favorite multi-billion, if not trillion dollar industry. And it's better because you have a complicated protagonist. You have somebody who is doing possibly the wrong thing for the right reasons or the right thing for the wrong reasons. And, you know, he's slimy. He talks a lot with Belichick. Belichick is a great character. I mean, I think that Tommy Lee Jones as Bill Belichick in this movie would be great. You, know, you probably get Christian Bale as Tom Brady. I th there's a fourth Hemsworth brother, I think, who'd be perfect as Rob Gronkowski. And uh, to tell the truth, uh, tell the truth, uh, I'm fantasy casting a movie that you know is still in script form, but we're reading a really good piece of material that I'm going to pass on to my boss, and hopefully she'll like. And I keep thinking like it is such a happy coincidence that I just happened to knock over that cup of coffee and spill on that particular script. Otherwise, I probably would have skipped it all over. And like, wouldn't it be crazy if a future version of me time traveled back, grabbed that cup of coffee, broke it, and set all of these events in motion? That that would be a crazy like you know second act break twist that's that would be nuts right uh, but on the subject of that coffee mug that leads me to the second interesting thing that happened to me this week uh, the brentwoods children's school got in touch with my boss and they kind of tracked her down realized that she was the one who snuck that mug away from the fundraiser for gluten-free lunches and reusable containers and oh god my boss uh sandra hughes gomez shg as we call her uh, she came over to my desk and i blabbed I told her immediately, yes, I was the one who broke the mug. It wasn't that rat bastard Caleb, although I'm pretty sure he's stealing post-it notes and Keurig K-cups. 
Uh, and she was starting to get very angry, and I had to tell her one good piece of news to get her mind off of it. And I told her about this Roger Goodell script that was wonderful and told her I was actually going to give it a grade of consider, and she smiled. And we see, that's how great it is when you have good material. Everybody's mood improves. And she said, like, do you actually like this? I said, yes, I do. I, 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 I would never lie about liking a script. You, you know that, SHG. I, mean, I don't call her that. I call her that behind her back. But, uh, and, uh, but either way, she was ecstatic. And she said, so you're serious? You really like the script? I said, yes, I do. And she said, I want to sit down and talk about this. And then she said, hey, I've got a whole bunch of mailing for you to do that's been piling up. So would you mind actually getting around to it? So I nodded. I was in no position to say no to my new best friend. And I want to talk to everybody out there about Stamps.com. Stamps.com is very confusing. I could not figure out their interface. They kept saying that I had forgotten my password, and then I told them that I hadn't set up an account with them to begin with. They should, they should be on top of this by now, even though then I did realize that I had signed up many, many years ago, but it was under a different email account because that was my undergrad email. Either way, very confusing site. And then at the end, when I was trying to check out, I used some offer codes from other podcasts. I typed in Crime Town, and they said, I'm sorry, this is no longer valid. Then I typed in Bang Bang. That didn't work. I typed in Colt Cabana. I typed in Planet Money. Uh, none of them seemed to work anymore. So I actually uh, stopped that, took all the padded mailers, and I walked down to the post office. And yes, I did have to wait in line, but the sassy woman behind the desk didn't ask me my password. So today's episode, I guess, is brought to you by postoffice.store. So riding that wave of positivity, I took the golf cart and I drove over to the vault and I decided this week I was going to read the coverage of a truly great script. You know, I was going to give myself a little bit of a break. You know, I'm tired of reading all the great recent scripts. Like, I mean, let's face it, this season we've done a lot of scripts from the 90s. So let's go back to the 70s and read a classic bit of Americana. That's right, everybody. We're looking at the 1972 Best Picture winner, The Godfather. And since this movie is a seminal piece of 1970s Paramount Pictures, I figured that this week, I'll read the coverage and character as mega-producer Bob Evans. Is this a good idea? Oh, you bet your ass it is. It was 1963, and Cary Grant, Gary Cooper, and I walked into Chasen's, and who should be sitting at the counter but a young, beautiful Ava Gardner, was she? Oh God! This I'm hearing it now. This is a bad idea. I am sorry. I am sorry. Oh God, Max! Why did you think you would do that? No, no, Max, no. Okay, uh, I'll just uh, get back to your normal coverage. Script title: The Godfather. Writer: Francis Ford Coppola. Based on the novel The Godfather by Mario Puzo. Genre: Drama. Page count, 193. Draft date, March 29, 1969. Logline. Despite wanting to avoid his criminal legacy, a World War II veteran gets drawn back into his mafia family's world when a rival outfit makes an attempt on his father's life. Comments. A multi-generational epic, The Godfather covers a lot of ground, spanning over a decade of time and featuring a cast of literally 100 characters. In fact, keeping track of all the different families and members and hierarchies is confusing, as the world continues to snowball as the script progresses and goes to another country. While ambitious, the story doesn't feature a clear protagonist, and has a tendency to wander, jumping from plotline to plotline for extended periods of time. And this is a long script. It would probably lead to a three-plus-hour film. The question is, is this a comprehensive look at a mafia family, 
or is it a sprawling, unfocused epic? The script's opening wedding scene is very clever, using the reception to set up the casts and mores of mob society. We see the power structure, meet the Corleones, and are immersed in a culture that values family, privacy, and their own brand of justice. The opening conversation between Vito and Bonacera gives us Chekhov's favor owed by an undertaker, which, appropriately enough, pays off nicely in Act 3 with Sonny's funeral. Tom Hagen would state, Don Corleone cannot refuse a favor on the day of his daughter's wedding, page 8. Michael then explains point-blank to Kay about Tom's history as an adopted son and what a consigliere is. All of this is a bit on the nose, and there might be a more graceful way of getting out this exposition. However, it will suffice. The horse head left in a producer's bed sequence punctuates a 10-page trip out to Hollywood. While this demonstrates the Corleone's pull and how they protect family interest, it feels as though it could be accomplished in a few fewer pages. Also, how exactly did Tom manage to sneak the bloody horse into the bed while the, while the producer was sleeping without anyone noticing? At the midpoint, which comes on page 100, when in a normal 120-page script it would come on page 55, Michael flees to Italy for protection. This leads to a 50-page diversion to Italy, where he immerses himself in that society and gets married. But what does Apollonia really add to the story? Yes, she is Michael's wife and an emotional tether to Italy, but we hardly get to know her, so her death in the car bomb doesn't quite resonate or track. The whole sequence, to be honest, doesn't feel entirely necessary and comes off more as a way of passing time before Michael's inevitable return to New York. The same criticism can be levied against Fredo's trip to Las Vegas and Michael's subsequent hostile takeover of Mo Green's territory. The storyline feels just a bit unfinished, and this script doesn't seem like the type of property with the potential for a sequel. Can we cut these scenes down or possibly eliminate them entirely? The story would probably have the same effect if the script were only about two hours long. Narcotics entered the equation thanks to Virgil the Turk Salazzo and his protection from the Tataglia family. Old school versus new school leads to a mob turf war, which also offers some inherent sympathy for the Corleone cause, wanting to keep narcotics out of the hands of children. From what little we see of him, Vito is a cornerstone of the family, whose complicated relationship with his son Michael provides much of his internal conflict. There is love for his son, wanting to keep him out of the family business, but that love also leads to him wanting to bring him closer. Vito, however, spends the majority of Act Two in a coma, interrupting his character arc's continuity, as well as keeping him away from other interactions. Cleverly, the titular Godfather changes throughout the script, a title getting passed from Vito to Sonny and then to Michael. But this deprives us of a clear protagonist. The first act is primarily Vito's story, as Michael appears only briefly at the wedding reception. He then finally enters the story properly on page 47, yet the second act feels like Sonny is running the show. On page 75, Michael decides to avenge the attempt on his father's life, and this plunges him into the mafia world. While a bit poetic that each act has a different godfather, it means that our protagonist is simply the Corleone male who happens to not die. With three competing leads, whose face do you put on the one-sheet poster to advertise this film? Michael, the de facto prodigal son, is the only character in the entire script to have a pronounced character arc, moving from a timid man who wants to avoid his family's legacy to ultimately becoming the cold-hearted yet pragmatic godfather. This is accomplished, however, by making him one of the meekest, quietest World War II Army war heroes in recent memory. Tom Hagen, 
the adopted German-Irish outsider, is the good soldier of the family, although he never shows much emotion. Hot-headed Sonny is a bit one-note, although he gains depth with his commitment to family, coming to the defense of his sister Connie. More on that altercation later. Fredo is feeble and pointless, perhaps by design, watching helplessly as his father gets gunned down in the street. With two competing crime families and their myriad of lieutenants, there are lots of names to remember. Dettaglia, Don Barzini, Tessio, Clemenza, Captain McCluskey. The script should have come with an appendix at the end, explaining every family tree and crime organization structure. With all these characters, some of them get lost. As soon as we remember who exactly Luca Brazzi is, he gets strangled and garroted. The script's dialogue is passable. It's steeped in mafia jargon, such as go to the mattresses or wartime consigliere, but it never feels as though it's written entirely in dialect. Vito's dialogue features short sentence structure, if-then statements, making him terse and terrifying. Appropriate for a story about a mafia power struggle, the script is also bloody and does not skimp on bullets or body count. In addition to the sequence at the end of many, many murders setting up Michael as the godfather, there are many shootouts in the streets in broad daylight. Most notable, though, is the fight scene between Sonny and Carlo, which could be particularly fantastic. Their fistfights in the street reads like a brutal, hard-hitting affair that could define the two actors' reputation as tough guys. The script wraps up with the door closing on Kay, who is a fairly unsubstantial, underdeveloped female role. And this comes shortly after Michael told her not to ask about his business. Obvious symbolism made redundant by that line. It puts a fine point on what is otherwise a straightforward script that doesn't deal in symbolism or figurative speech. While there is a strong narrative thread in the relationship between Michael and his father, this is a long, underlying, long script. It is also a period piece, meaning that the budget would be much higher than usual. Despite some of the good moments, none of the hundred-some-odd characters stick around long enough for them to make a real impact or impression. Also, a good portion of the script is in Italian, and American audiences hate reading subtitles. This is a somewhat intriguing script, but at the end of the day, it only makes me an offer that I can refuse. Recommendation. Pass. So there you have it. I think the lesson to be learned here is that maybe you need to pare down the number of characters in your spec screenplay. You know, maybe just focus on a few tight, strong character arcs as opposed to blowing the world out with a whole bunch of side characters. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to go talk to our producer, Sandra Hughes-Gomez, about this Roger Goodell script. I've got to avoid talking to my intern, Caleb, and I also owe our production coordinator, Vern, 15 bucks for our fantasy football draft that's coming up. Uh, signing off, I'd like to thank Noah Goldberg, as always, for our theme music, which is spectacular, and as some people on iTunes have said, the only good part of the show. Uh, my name is Max Davison. I've been your host, reminding you, as always, that even the classics could use another passive notes. <laughs> <laughs>